recording. Fantastic. Hi, everyone. Welcome to um, the new writing series. Today we are have the first-year MFA students reading. Um, oh, sorry. My name is Lily Wong. I am a professor of creative writing here. Um, and I believe these wonderful first-years are going to introduce each other, right? Oh, Anna Joy was supposed to introduce you. <laughs> but I will instead. I've got the order. Um, it's usually a much tighter ship than this. Um, but unfortunately, Brandon Som, who usually runs the program, uh, had a family emergency. And then Anna Joy Springer, our lovely director, is at the library. <laughs> Uh, but is on her way here at any moment, and she will do a much better job than I will on this. Um, but first up today, we have TM. TM Lawson went to UCLA. UCLA. Um, what's that? Is a poet. I don't know. I don't know about poet. I, I, I'm, I'm going to go general writer. Even though, like, poet, poet heart, maybe, but I think you got more prose in there. I like that you're convinced of that, because that was not the case for a long time. This is what I'm convinced of, <laughs> is that T.M. Lawson is a big proser. Proser. I said that. Uh, T.M.'s accomplishments are many, and, in fact, I will let you tell us all of your accomplishments when you walk up here. T.M. Lawson. No. I don't want that. So a little bit about me. I'm 30 years old as of Friday. Yeah, and I invented dinosaurs. And sometimes I like tapioca pudding. I once named a character Tapioca. It was not well received. And uh, <laughs> I only have poems to share, so you'll have to bear with me. All right. Now to pick which one to go first. Okay. This one is called, Yeah, I'm sobering to go to the beach with me, and I can have you have a woman who was the worst thing that could have been up since the worst thing that could happen in a woman who was everything okay night. And I have been pretty responsive to your voicemails because of your home and Academy Awards for the last time. You had me to have feelings. Sometimes that cramps. And then they added bullshit in a week or so, but I am helping them, LOL. But that's me because of the phone call. Okay, sunshine hitting on me so awkwardly made me feel like a sunflower and the rest of the apartment was clear and half a person per game between laughing men. This one's called 
the switch of water. I don't have to give expression to women in training. I am a man in waiting. A pen mark that makes me feel less like a filling, more of an out line. Carrying chip polish oils to save my white skin. The loneliness I can parcel like cubes. The melting of ice burns on this shoulder. The desert is calling my name to forget to drink water. To remember any excuse to be rippled, ripped open. A touched surface reverberating. A shallow living space I call my face. My browning body. My chronic whip and tide and scar. Over the heart and through the rainbow. To grandmother's burial we go. To phoenix. To perfect. To phone the home where forefathers and no mothers live. A mouth in place of a vagina. And this one's inspired by uh, Gertrude Stein, for anyone who's read Tender Buttons. God help you. <laughs> Crazed glitter. Pus. What is pus? It is clover. It is noodled red crayon. The moon in that is that water is absent. The volcanoes have arrived. The grass is empty. Yet it isn't. It, it is, is, all, all, and gingered smoke and chemtrails, and surely they belong to someone but forgot to change their breath, and a colossus knocked on the door, and maps have moved to skin. Remember, glinting is tool clarification. Yet the palm tree won't go out smoothly. There was once a war hung about the frame, newspaper clippings on how to do, the sheets have pudding, the stars have knives, and the face is gray sunshine, and the face is hot moonlight. The dots have driven insane, yet canvas, for a little while. Exercise, brown technique, soothing tectonics, scheduling the next earthquake. It shows up late, early, on time, unwanted, planned, unexpected. Hoped, feared, latent. It likes to borrow oiled sugar from time to time. And this will be my last poem. Uh, it's a new one called While I'm Not Familiar. My skin, its color, the textured Spanish of eyes. My skin, pitted and poxed. My king of snapping teeth and blood gum. My king of whips and chains and cliche-gaped asshole. My king of breathlessness and choking. Oh, those kings I smothered in red rooms. Not mine. The light hiding my dimensions. I'm not familiar. Familiar. And the daughter dog, curled in bed with bone. And the red collar with orgasm and hearts and the birdcage shadow, and the spiked heel song, and the homeless native night crawler in old day, and the animistic tattoos prescribed with hunger, and Hossein's hill of a belly the daughter dog slept on, and the father boyfriend who held the hair, and the mother boyfriend who stomped on chests, and the line of fathers railroading, and the jaws, the parrot silence, the matricide,
the cock craving, the orphan kin, the rope, the pillow, the blinding candle, the mindfuck. That was lovely. Thank you. You you are a rock star. Um, I also wanted to uh, say in TM's introduction that TM is one of the most amazing TAs ever. I'm so lucky to have TM and Allison. Allison does too, and she is also a superstar. Um, next, we have Aiden LaRue. Um, Aiden is not a robot. <laughs> Thanks, Lily. <laughs> she has feelings, and we're working really hard with those feelings to not be. Aiden's actually, um, Aiden can write one of the most dynamite sentences um and they just appear like you're like oh look sentence sentence i recognize this as a sentence and then bam something that's like extraordinary so expect that and uh you know be disappointed if you don't get it no i'm kidding <laughs> aiden Okay, I'm just going to pull up some images for you guys to look at while I read. Thank you for that impromptu introduction, Lily. You're doing a good job rolling with the punches. Um, okay. So this piece is called Birth Mouth. Um, and I've been working on a series of essays that's um, about both of my parents, who my mother studied invertebrate zoology, and my father is a marine biologist who studies fish. And so both of these essays are sort of exploring my relationship to my parents through fish. I'm going to read you the essay that's focused around my mother, and it's called Birth Mouth. The cichlid fish is native to the African continent. I can't remember where I first learned of this species. It was just noted somewhere in an old word file on my laptop. But she holds the eggs of her babies in her mouth for two weeks until they hatch. Even after they have broken from their eggs, she continues to carry the little ones in her mouth for another two weeks. She lets them out during feedings, ready to inhale them back into the cave of her mouth if danger approaches. A mouth, a cave a home, a womb. My mother wears a lot of oversized sweatshirts at home, and she is home often since she works from the third bedroom in our house. When I was a little girl, I used to climb up onto her lap and under her sweatshirt, pretending that I could crawl back inside her belly. I wanted to keep gestating. I use the word home flippantly. I wish I was more delicate with it, like the antique glass objects in my grandmother's house. A house is just a building for living in, a structure. But a home, a home is something more permanent. There are things in the walls, feelings circulating among the rooms that make it more. I slip up and say, I just got home on the phone with my partner Lucas as I walk through the door of my casita in San Diego. What I mean to say to him is, I am back at my place of residence, but no one talks like that. 
He is in Austin. This is not my bed. It is not our bed. It is borrowed for nine months while I sublet an inherited array of furniture and cooking utensils. I always felt like growing up in New Hampshire, it was just a place of residence, not a home. I am always fascinated by my partner's love of Austin, the city he grew up in. Austin is alive and weird, whereas I was raised in a town of 4,000 people that didn't even have a main street and skirted a college town. I wonder what it would be like to feel that my hometown had more to offer to me now that I am an adult, the way that Lucas feels about Austin. The phrase, the mouth of the river, reminds me that home is about origins. Mouths are openings and origins. I wonder what it is like for the baby cichlid fish to be inside its mother's mouth when it is closed. The whole world is dark. What is, this li what is it like when the whole world, the whole home, is a mouth? Does it feel small? Do they want to escape? When are they ready to leave and find their own home? And what of the mother fish? How does she manage to contain so much life in her mouth? Does her mouth feel empty when her babies outgrow their home? I don't know if fish communicate or how, but I imagine what it would be like for a human mother, my mother, if she had carried me in her mouth while I grew. What if she had needed to be silent for the entire gestation period because I waited down her tongue? In Agnes Varda's short film, short black and white film, L'Opera Mouffe, the audience follows a young pregnant woman walking down Rue Mouffetard in Paris. We watch as she passes through the landscape of the city and all that it contains, markets, poverty, lovers. In the final scene, the soon-to-be mother passes a flower stand where she picks up a rose and without pause begins to eat it. She collects another small bouquet and begins to snack on the blooms. Every time I watch this film, I'm captivated by this closing. It is as if her surreal compulsion is explained entirely by the state of her pregnant body. Her need for nourishment overwhelms. Her mouth is a vessel for the unexpected cravings that come with someone else making her body a home. What places have I lived that I could consider a home? The first apartment, Lucas and I lived together on our own, on Robin's place in Austin. My grandparents' home on the coast of Maine that my great-grandmother bought with her own money in the 40s. The yoga retreat center in the Berkshires that my mother frequented after she divorced my father. The cooperative bed and breakfast where I was a business partner for two years in Brooklyn. Perhaps the house I lived in when I was an exchange student in Peru the year after high school. Though maybe that feeling is not one of home, but of the relief of sleeping in the same bed every night. For the first time in 12 years, I didn't have to move back and forth between my parents' separate houses twice a week. My father may or may not have proposed to my mother by putting an engagement ring on a hook and asking her to put a worm on his line. After their wedding ceremony, they took photos in hip waders and went fishing with the whole wedding party. I was supposed to be born on the first day of brook trout fishing season, the fourth Saturday in April. My parents called me Little Brookie while they waited for me to come. I didn't want to leave the womb, though, and it was days after my due date that my mother finally felt contractions begin. 
I was so reticent to enter the world that my mother labored for nearly 24 hours before the doctor lifted me out via C-section. For my birth announcement, my parents staged me next to a fishing rod and wrote, We got a keeper, along with my weight and length. I was small for my age, but bigger than a brook trout. My mother believes that the way I came into the world, hesitantly, is embedded in my personality to this day. It cannot be undone. It may be because I am a Taurus. I have a strong desire to nest, for constant comfort. When I come home from traveling, I unpack first thing when I arrive. At the end of every day, when I walk through the door, I settle in by putting everything from my bag back where it belongs. Empty lunch containers into the sink, groceries into the fridge, books and laptop and notebooks back on the desk, scraps of paper in the recycling. I've never stopped longing to be enveloped, contained, cocooned. My mother has long abandoned her hobby of fishing. My mother always used to remind me, don't chew with your mouth open. It was impolite, obscene even, to show what was inside my mouth, to let the sounds of food spill out of it. I had an especially hard time not smacking my sugar-free trident gum, which annoyed her. (laughs) I sucked on my left forefinger, too. I didn't like washing my hands or taking baths, and my young body was susceptible to whatever I touched. I was much too old when my parents finally got me to quit the habit of sucking my finger. Ten or eleven years old, maybe. For the longest time, there was a little bubble just below my knuckle that was probably a mark from where my bottom row of teeth landed on my own hand when I put it inside my mouth. It took nearly two years for the protrusion to relax. How do we decide what is okay to consume through the mouth and what we must protect from its violent bite? There are things that belong and things that don't. It is like a home. You know what's welcome and what's not. There is etiquette, of course, but there is taboo, too. I remember watching an episode of Star Trek as a girl where Chakotay and Seven of Nine are on a date making making dinner together. He dips his finger in the tomato sauce and asks her if it needs salt. She slowly sucks the pulpy red stew off his finger, and I remember how quickly I understood the sensuality of the mouth in a new way, beyond the kissing that I'd witnessed on screen. We've forgotten why kissing is so spectacular. It is the meeting of the mouths, the opening to the cave of ourselves. Tasting is an intimate act, and suddenly I saw that fingers could belong in a mouth after all. In one of my favorite films, Tampopo, directed by Juzo Itami, two lovers meet in a hotel room over a banquet of food delivered by room service. The food is brought in on carts, but not simply an array of prepared meals. It is a cornucopia of fish, fruit, baking ingredients, bottles of wine. As the man and woman fall into bed, they use the food from the carts to feast upon and relish in their bodies. The man salts the woman's nipple and squeezes lemon juice on it. He places two live prawns in liquid inside of a bowl and places it upside down onto the woman's pale stomach, suctioning the creatures into a temporary aquarium. The shrimps squirm and jump under the glass cave, tickling her while she laughs uncontrollably on the bed. As the two lovers are about to depart, dressed again, the man reaches for an egg on the table. He cracks it open, separates out the white, and slips the intact yolk into his mouth before moving to embrace the woman. 
Instead of a kiss, they begin to pass the raw yoke back and forth between their panting mouths. They move slowly, arms wrapped around one another, eyes wide open. Their lips touch lightly, oscillating the wet, yellow orb delicately. Finally, after many exchanges, the woman moans and closes her eyes, allowing the yoke to burst and spill down her chest onto her white dress. How does the cichlid fish tell the difference between the mother's mouth and the father's mouth? The father cichlid will snack on them without pause. The difference between a mother's mouth and a father's is the difference between being eaten and being held. What if the baby cichlid fish doesn't want to come out of the mother's jaw? The artist Anne Hamilton has a series of photos she made with a pinhole camera she inserted into her mouth. A pinhole camera can be made at home and operates by puncturing a small hole into one side of a container that contains a piece of photosensitive paper or film inside. Because the hole is so small, pinhole cameras cannot take images instantaneously like a camera which has a mechanism for controlling the shutter speed. The exposure must be extended, often five or six minutes long, and requires incredible stillness for the image not to be blurry. The hole is usually covered with a, dark pe with a piece of thick pa tape or paper, which is removed for the exposure, or in the case of Hamilton's project, when her mouth is closed... Hamilton's images are black and white, mostly blurred portraits, with a few landscapes that are vignetted by the shape of an eye. In two of the images, you can see the detail of Hamilton's lips, the fleshy, wet interior of the edge of her mouth. I imagine Hamilton, petite, with short white hair, standing still for five minutes, jaw hinged open as she stands before her subject, utterly vulnerable. She transforms the orifice of language into the orifice of sight. She births an image with the same gesture of the mother cichlid fish by opening her mouth. Thank you. doing this. Yes, you have. <laughs> that is a true statement. Um, Allison is tremendously funny and um, and I've I've read a very very small amount of your writing. So all I know is um, all that I know about Allison are, are are from the conversations that we've had about her writing which make me so 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 excited. Um, about all of the possibilities that, that I wish she would just write it, like right now, so that I can then, you know, do what I want to do with it. Um, which is make it incredible. Um, and she's, she's also a marvelous, marvelous, marvelous TA. So, uh, I have nothing else to say, Allison. Thank you, Lily.
Okay, so I have a few poems for you. It is true, my name is still Allison. Hi. Now that we're looking at each other. Um, so, I entered here as a poet, but I haven't really been writing poems. But then, you know, I got lucky and I started writing some poems. Um, and so, for the collection I've been working on, uh, I have been really obsessed with playlists. Just the idea of collecting artists and putting them together in a group uh, for the sake of a vibe. And then once I started making playlists, I started to think about bands and like jazz musicians and how they're just the coolest people on the planet. Uh, and so I started to write in the voice of these like fictitious jazz characters. So here's one of those. A preemptive from the rhythm section. This is the jazz division wherein rip and riffs are essential to fullness. Be it bubblegum tap cymbals or paradiddled snares, this playlist has yet to catalyze. You see, only the jive saturated are fit for the play button where we come in. Yes. Before she hits play, you should know we've been interluding in your absence. Quarter and eighths, liming in the rest silence, snaking freely, flavoring or muting, maybe veiling what may come next, who turns out, no, who appears to be you. Please be seated. I got a playlist. I've got a playlist for your badass back, for your brooding hour for the middle person in the back seat with the too tight lap belt on, for the crunchy noises in the library's midnight hours, for empty alleys and darted glances, for tall grasses and meadow perusing and the lumped mosquito kisses whom itch in public. I've got a playlist for honey baths and infinity time sipping cocktails, for scalding showers and paydays, for when they turn the power back on, for that moonlit dress, for matching fresh fits with your soul twin, for clinking foots, for layering shea butter over winter crannied skin, for buying the ritzy groceries. I've got a playlist for wholesome family hour, for struggle opening them pickled jars, for up to no good and bad things with friends, for the throb session after a toe stubbing, for all the Felicias who haven't had a hello since 95. <laughs> for the WebMD panic attacks. For first time honey baby sees your massive underoonies. For fading gray, ebbing maroon, and dull blues. No playlist yet for hunger pains. And then when I was writing, I started to think about... Um, the songs, the playlists that were given to me. So here's one. Untitled. A tape handed to my mother mixed by my favorite grade school janitor called Oldies. That's where I began. An MP3 brick juiced with Jamiroquai and songs about Jane by my sister. Perhaps it was Lenny Kravitz five in dad's voice, my own joining from a backseat booster chair. Schwepper Vescent need be mentioned as the richest referential next to the chop and splicing of footsteps in the dark. Burnt CDs of Montreal, black-rimmed eyes running, a helmet of shellacked straightened hair head bopping to Keen. 
And now, 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 I am myself again, which is not a Mayakovsky gesture, but rather a nod to the orchestral swelling when Don Draper sends his California wife this meditation. <laughs> Acid jazz and thick bass lines like the breakfast joints who've known my order and how the corner booth enhances digestion. My girlfriends implicate me as cookout music bearer and lurer of leather sandal wearers. I myself agree. <laughs> Untitled. On a white page, ink is always black, drained, and wounded with thin margins. In a white room, brown edges creep in only to be painted white behind paint layers. Brown is not dingy, but saccharine brown, now suffocating in a white room, a black body, is error on canvas, not even a pollock. Behind a white screen door, a blood-emboldened figure insists a white room must be vacant. In a white room, you remove yourself only to end up in another white room, blinding white, Closing in white, covered in white, fastened white, refuses to bathe after swallowing you white, persisting on whiteness, turning you white, and creaseless. No door, nor windows, just white, melding into all that has stripped you into what you are now. You wonder whiteness, a wondering that sore thumbs you, how whiteness highlights fugacious black. Not a second skin, not a disguise, but an unopening mouth growing smaller. A white page begs for black, for without, white cannot sound in a white room. Who likes love? Well, I do. Okay, that's nice. That's good. Okay. All in. All in. That's beautiful. Wow. Love is nice. Right? How tender are we? <laughs> Sugar song. Me and my sweetness phoned for 120 minutes, swollen with blended giggling, a revived melody. My love, like being lap chosen by an old curmudgeon cat, I'll brush up, circle, and purr you in game for melody. Thigh thickness, like the swallowing of several cosmic brownies with no drink. I'll booty bounce to your milk-gargling melody. I'd like my mouth to forever taste of kettle corn, like swallowing sunrise while Philip Bailey falsettos melody. The same dense sigh ebbs unison, I know we're still on from the melody. My honey and I, we aren't chiming on this soundless Sunday. Draw the blinds, shut out the melody. Sugar dissolved, mouth taste returning, dehydrated melody. You hang crusted and cornered at the edge of my lips. Call on me like the sugar hasn't staled. Sing my name, hum the melody. No one who loves me like family knows me as Allison. Where my mother is from, my second given name comes with a melody. The second project I'm working on, which is why I'm not writing poems, uh, is turning out to be a children's story. Um, 
So, yeah, I'm just going to read it. I'll read you the first two pages of my fiction. A Dummy Adventure with Sweet Drew Baby. Four years old, the height and roundness of Momsy's healthy house ficus, Sweet Drew Baby played animals every day when the sun became clementine. At the same time, Lieutenant Dad came home to snore a squish snore, snore on the love seat after working for the state. This was just before Momsy dressed in her scrubs on weekdays. This today was a Sunday. On this Sunday, Momsy pressed a fruit gummy snack pouch, or as Sweet Drew Baby called them, gummy nubbins, into Sweet Baby's fluffy hand and whispered, Be good and don't wake up Lieutenant Dad. I'm going to deliver these peaches to neighbor Barbara. Doesn't everybody have a neighbor named Barbara? <laughs> and she was off. The sound of Momsy's mules clacked into the distance. On this Sunday, Lieutenant Dad had not the energy to give the grass its weekly haircut. The sun was just about ripe, and sweet Drew Baby was revved to frolic. He skipped to the screen door, smashing a gummy tree between his very gapped teeth. Just as his right foot's big toe tasted the crisp outdoors, sweet Baby heard his dad roll over. Sweet Baby, in gemio sans fouet, said Dad. The translation, did I not tell you to go, home, go out alone? You know better than that. Lieutenant Dad, it's animal time. He dashed from the screen door like Usain Bolt in the 2008 Summer Olympics. Sweet so Drew Baby's ankles were licked by each dewy blade as he zipped through the backyard. He was zooming so quickly, he almost forgot his right hand was full of gummy nubbin treats. Sweet Baby smashed six fruity snacks into his mouth and did a small dance to celebrate all the yum traveling to his tender little tum. <laughs> Sweet Baby, you've got till the count of three to get your packed pampers back into this house. Sweet Baby wriggled and realized his pamper pull-up was indeed filled to its Velcro strappings. In fact, he couldn't run any longer. His discomfort was twofold. First, the slop in his pull-up. Second, his dry, dry legs. Perpetually avoiding lotioning after baths, Sweet Drew Baby had legs that resembled healthy cassavas, ashy brown and crackled. He was so uncomfortable that he had to pick up each leg without bending his knees to avoid the heavy load sagging in his favorite Oshkosh cotton shorts. His walk resembled that of Granny with the bad back. <laughs> Little note, that's his uh, paternal grandmother. <laughs> the tall grass had lost its luster. He smashed the remaining four gummies into the gaps between his teeth as he hobbled toward Lieutenant Dad. It was something odd for Dad to have known Sweet Baby soiled his pampers on his sprint. Thank you. <laughs> And last but not least, we have Evelyn um, Murdoch. I just learned that. Um, uh, what what interesting things do I have to say about Evelyn? Um, pretty boring, pretty basic. Uh, one of the most basic human beings I've met. <laughs> um, you know, 
but that's only because everyone I know is really strange, and so you are somehow. If, if this is basic, then I live in a. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I was just thinking like the implications for me. If I'm like, oh no, this right here, this is basic. Yeah. Uh, there, like, there's something very wrong with me because you are extraordinary. Um, and I've only read a few things that you've written, and I know that you're mostly a poet. Um, but I feel like just I, I just keep on rejecting all the poetry. I'm like, no, you guys just all write prose. Um, but I do know that you have excellent taste in music. So, TM. No, it's fine. It's just you. I feel like you've got dibs on being you. No, I'd like the third or fourth to be me. Oh, yeah. It takes a second to warm up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's one of the reasons I changed my name. Yes. Thanks, Beyonce. So. Well, I lost some stuff. Um, hi, my name's Evelyn Murdoch. Um, I, I get freaked out when a whole room full of people are looking at me. So, um, hi. So, yeah, everybody, yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you. I'm still nervous, but I appreciate it. Um, okay, so I'm going to start. This is for later, but it's up. So you can look at it. Um... So, I'm going to open with this poem. It's called Name Tag. Call me hang-ups. Call me forlorn. Call me tissue. Call me new bruises. Call me harlot. Call me overbite. Call me abscess. Call me toothpaste. Call me prolapse. Call me relapse. Call me wawa. Call me tomorrow. Call me anaphora. Call me tranny. Call me thou, call me fracture, call me sir, call me lipstick, call me holistic, call me kazix, call me nostril, call me silicone, call me latex, call me $500, call me blackbird, call me meemaw, call me butane, call me simulation, call me probably, call me hopefully, call me adverb, call me fuck you, call me pay me, call me USA. Call me methamphetamine, call me please, call me blowjob, call me bathroom, call me glamour, call me cowboy hat, call me heaven, call me. And that was one poem that I wrote my first quarter here. Now I'm going to read the prologue to a play. Um, it was originally a story that I wrote my first quarter here, and now I'm rewriting it as a play, and I decided to do just the prologue from it because that requires only one actor. Um, yeah. Okay, so this is called Hyper Bible. Oh, yeah, actually, let's explain why this is here. Okay, so I got, um, I got here, and I was like, oh, my God, I have the worst case of writer's block that I've ever had in my entire life. And I don't know what to do about that. And I was just trying to think of, like, 
ways to come up with things to write. And then I heard about this thought experiment called the Hyperwebster by Dr. Ian, Ian Stewart uh, to illustrate this idea of uncountable infinity, which I'm not a math person. I don't know what that really means. But in the thought experiment, there's an infinite library that contains every possible sequence and combination of letters, which would be an infinite library, right? So I decided to write um, a story about monkeys writing that dictionary. Um, yeah. Uh, so here's the prologue. And, and this, this is kind of what I was doing before I came up with Hyper Bible. I just filled up an entire page with that. and It's like a word search. The character list. The character list? Uh, I didn't bring the character list, but I can pull it up real quick. Um, bu -bu 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 Wait, actually, I might have a copy of the character list. I do. Yay. Wait, do I? Yes, I do. Okay, cool. Okay, so characters. Uh, the narrator, an omniscient disembodied voice. The inky black void. Eternal, formless, CEO of Inky Black Void, Inc. Oxford, young golden-mantled tamarind, typist at Inky Black Void, Inc. Shakespeare, middle-aged lion-tailed macaque, floor manager in the English ty typing pool at Inky Black Void, Inc. Miriam, young buffy-tufted marmoset, typist at Inky Black Void, Inc. Joyce, young proboscis monkey, typist at Inky Black Void, Inc. Chaucer, Elderly Olive Baboon, typist at Inky Black Void, Inc. <laughs> Cadman, Ancient Mesopithecus, which, for those of you that don't know, is the common ancestor we share with chimpanzees. Um, typist at Inky Black Void, Inc. Um, Bowtie, Young Pekingese Dog, unpaid intern at Inky Black Void, Inc. <laughs> the Man in the Towel is a man in a towel. And then we've got Angry Audience Member 1 and Angry Audience Member 2. Um, Marsha P. Johnson, a uh, black trans woman who incited the Stonewall riots, and police officers. So, yeah, that's the character list as it stands right now. That may grow or shrink or something. Um, but yeah, now I'm gonna, now I'm actually gonna read it. Um, Hyper Bible. Uh, Good evening, and welcome to this evening's performance of Hyper Bible. I'm your narrator, an omniscient, disembodied voice. If you haven't already, please take this time to turn off any and all communication devices. I said off. Not silent, not airplane mode, not do not disturb, off. I swear you humans can't even follow the simplest directions. It makes me embarrassed for you. <laughs> there, isn't that liberating? Now, many of you may be wondering to yourselves, what is hyperbible, but are afraid to seem like the ignorant human in the room? And to that I say, never fear. All humans are ignorant about nearly everything, so no species that matters is looking down on you for it. Oh, right, and to answer your question, hyperbible is a techno-divinatory self-exploration sequence, a type of meditative practice with a higher purpose, compiling everything that is either true, false, or for whatever reason, neither, into a single volume which, when complete, will bring the singularity that sends all of existence into an eternal cosmic utopia. The concept for Hyperbible is derived, in the loosest sense, from Dr. Ian Stewart's Hyperwebster thought experiment, 
Contained within this hypothetical tome would be a record of everything that has ever happened, everything that has ever not happened, all the good and bad jokes, transcripts of every wedding toast where the groom's ex is way too drunk, even exactly where you buried that box you think no one will ever find. But where did Hyperbible come from? Well, my friends, that's quite a story. Fortunately for you, that is exactly what this evening's show is all about. It all started at an indeterminate point somewhere between the beginning of time and right now, in a place called Hyperbabble, the corporate headquarters of Inky Black Void Incorporated, commonly referred to as Inky Black Void Inc. And that's the prologue. You don't get the rest of the play. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, okay, um, so... After this, the next quarter... Um, so this is very tedious to write. If you ever want to try doing this, it takes a very long time. You hate yourself at about here. Um, so uh, I, I kind of took I, the, the idea behind this, which was just write and write and write and keep writing, you know. And I... Um, so... I started playing with poetry more as a uh, visual form. Um, this is like all of them that I wrote. I, there are some that are frozen that I'm going to read. Um, but it, it, they're, uh, I call them scomps um, because I learned in some class in undergrad that sonnet came from an Italian word for song, I believe. To, I don't speak Italian. That could be completely wrong. Um, but, uh, I, and so I did some research and I was like, you know, I want to play on that. These are all 14 lines, by the way. So they're kind of sonnets. Um, not really. Uh, lost my train of thought. Um, so I'm just going to go ahead and skip to the next slide. Um, oh, yeah, and so I came up with scomp from the Italian word scompilio, uh, which, according to Google Translate, means chaos, or, and, um, yeah, and so when I wrote these, I wrote, like, a hundred of these. Um, these were guidelines that were just in the footer of my document while I was writing it. Um, so the guidelines are, you must have a concept of self in order to write a scomp, so um, a scomp should be done with intent, you should never delete any part of a scomp, only entire scomps. The reason I included that is because it forced me to look at what I was writing. Um, you should not step away before finishing a scomp. The purpose of a scomp's title is to frame its reception. A scomp is always a sonnet. Rules are for nerds. A scomp should be in conflict with itself. And a scomp's meaning is subjective and is inflicted by its audience, not its author. So... Without further ado, also, so these are supposed to be kind of noisy um, poems, so I brought a thing to make my reading of it a little noisier. Um, yeah, so this, this poem's about being on hormone replacement therapy, kind of. <clears throat> it's called The Thick Black Line. My bralette shapes, my cone-shaped ninnies in their puff-core phase open up this estrapit, spiro-step, black-line core. My ninnies are fucking laser guns, pastor. My ass is the bomb, but my tears are napalm tigers shrieking over. Open this pit and... Uh, uh, shrieking over. Open this pit and let us out, they scream. And you, Sharon, you say it must be the parents' fault. Okay. So that was one. Um... 
I'm, I'm shaking and stuff. I'm ready for this to be over. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, okay. Um, so those of you who aren't chemists, that's cholesterol. Um, I wrote this after a doctor's appointment. <laughs> Why the fuck would I need to take 10,000 steps in a day? I have a bus pass in my arteries. My wheezing tubes to my heart clotted, clogged like the shower drain, all full of wads of long hair held together by viscous semen. Let my blood pool in places since it can't flow through, can't flow through me like I should, like it should. My body is bone in. My body is a temple and there's seas of sewage coming out of the floor drains. Okay. And then one more of these, I think. Yeah, this is the last one. And then we'll go back to some stuff where I'm not yelling at you through a... Um, this is one of the first ones I wrote. Um, and I just think it's funny. None of you may think it's funny, but I think it, I, I just had such a great time while I was writing this. <laughs> so it's called, I laughed like a real asshole while I wrote this, and now my neighbor hates me. But anyway, it's about my childhood home in Harvest, Alabama. <coughs> At my dad's house, there's nothing but water damage. Thank you. Okay. So I think... That might, yeah, that's the last one. So y'all can just look at that poem while I read the rest of these. <laughs> All right. Um, so I, I decided that I needed to start putting the pieces of my poems back together. So I just started writing more cohesive poems that I allowed myself to edit and stuff. And this is one of those. It's called Garbage Walrus, part one. The garbage walrus comes freakly into the hangar, the first and last place you look, you look, you look at and like your mother, at and like your mom, and your dad compared you to Papa, said you was wild, that you was wild like Papa, that you had a beard like Papa, and you don't know if that's true, but what you do know is that you still hear that sound, you still hear that I love you, that you could only even tell was that because of context, because he was laying there dying, not lucid, drinking Diet Grape Co, and you was leaving because you had rehearsal and you was leaving because you didn't want to watch him die and you was leaving because you was hung over and you needed a beer before you drove back to Huntsville and now you worry that Mima is going to die but you never talk to her anymore mom said that you'll always be Sean to her so you still got to chew that up and swallow it oh sorry should I have done the funny ones last or uh okay oh fuck I forgot to put this in here this is an American haiku <laughs> Um, called Guns, Germs, and Steel. <laughs> I wrote it on the bus right here uh, a couple of weeks ago. A granola bar, banana peel draped darn socks up on the bus seat. <laughs> um, let's see. Oh, yeah, crap. And then there's Garbage Walrus Part 3. I forgot about that. 
Uh, take ferment and lauded as heroes each successive field of poppies and granite and blue vinyl condoms which don't rot the way apples do on the ground, the way you don't hear ticks bulbous over weeks like water balloons filled with your citric blood, the talks leak out its pores until the rupture from pressure. Oh, feel it, that stereo, that whirl of mud mids, that's the sounds of Jupiter and Neptune who have been sleeping an oddly long time, good God, the garbage walrus exclaims, feed on gelatin piss and frighten your mother and then disappear. Eat your used needles each hour I sit here. I wait for the comet headed straight towards me and cigarettes burn down like dominoes. Okay. This is another one that I think is funny, but no one else might think is funny. Um, it's called Who the Fuck Put Me in Charge? A Persona Poem Featuring God. Um, son, stay where you are and I will walk west when I'm ready for tomorrow. Earth, please be spherical or at least promise me that I'll hit Australia before I go over your edge. Y'all with your three dimensions, how dull it must be to know there's a fourth, but you can only move one way. And that's, that's, that's it for that poem. And then I've got two more. Do I have time for two more? How much time do I have? How long have I been up here? It feels like a week or so. Um, yeah. So this is about this is about my apartment. Um, I, I I did uh, automatic writing practice for this. I'm not going to tell you the title of it because it's my apartment number. Um, but uh, it's apartment blank. Um, a lawn as plastic as given is not asked for as design. Circle, silver, circle, las luces, and loosest hamstring upon which we are layered, the coating which protects. It is worth the scent which seeps in the climb down and the exit signaling for the blue tubes and the polyester linens, nylon rings, artificial hickory smoke flavor, one inch deep and diluted with water. It is often said that the dog never asked to be born and was in fact in the process of growing hands when it was expelled from its mother's womb, an, uninf an uninformed human whose vocabulary consists only of howls. Moons are taken for, taken for granted. The few fingers which have touched this keyboard are indeed damaged. A new bay con condensed from new bays, shaped like narwhals, shaped like rhinoceros sausage, sausage under the glass in zero gravity. Give your money for egg cultures grown beneath your feet, a vacuum cleaner and a toothbrush. These are the tools of modern man. The delousing is facilitated with kerosene, as is the desheltering, as is the dissemination of, our, of pieces. Our sun will grow to be an out-of-control force when candles become too much of a good thing, a thing when candles become a mountain embedded in fibers, scraped flat and never to vanish. Chain tracks, alarm shrieks, and given the context, the foam pieces between your toes, the clipping, where names are highlighted. Who are those names? What is the chimney? Where is... Where is the what is the climate plug, the ozone layer, fumigate by fumando, and let the suns raise in if only it were to move between the poles. Right? Um, and then, so I'm from the deep south. I'm from Alabama. Um, I know you could probably tell just from looking at me that I'm your typical Alabamian. Um, but... Uh, so there's this this kind of idea and this sort of stigma that's 
I would say not completely unfounded, but a little bit exaggerated that sort of like in these co- in larger coastal cities that like art scenes, especially like performance art tends to be this like sort of inaccessible, like, you know, like, well, if I, if I may do my redneck voice, like you think you're better than me, you know, like, because they don't, you know, it's just very in- inaccessible kind of stuff. And, um, so in class the other day, we had a writing exercise where we had to write, um, a sequence of performances, uh, that could be a poem. And I just wanted to re- read a few of them. Yeah. It was Aiden's, yeah, Aiden's idea for me to write this, by the way. Uh, I want to put post-its in a spot and let strangers write basic sentiments before sticking them on a wall and call it my art. I want to dogpile with other artists and sniff their farts while they sniff mine. (laughs) Write something meaningless and brilliant so that academics can waste a bunch of time. (laughs) Shove my hands through concrete blocks and tear my nails off in protest of Revlon. I want to be your family dog, but only if your family has never met me. (laughs) I want to tickle myself, but I read somewhere that you can't. So when I do my performance, I hope folks really pick up on the absurdity of it. Uh, I want to direct a play where the actors actually break their legs. (laughs) I want to... (laughs) One more. Um, I want to juggle puppies in zero gravity. And that just sounds like it would be great. That's, yeah. Um, did I, did I fill my, my time allotment? Can I leave now? Okay, cool. with you four in particular because I am also in my first year so we're like we're newbies together guys we're gonna just hold hands and be friends forever but without that part we'll just hold hands no wait no we we're not be friends hands. too oh that's we what just, we're keeping let's just see what happens <laughs> um, yeah no it's, it's, been, it's been such a pleasure interacting with all of the students especially um, these guys and I we should announce that the third the graduating MFAs will be reading two weeks from now mm-hmm, on June sixth at four thirty here here in this room. not in the library not in the library here uh, where I went um, and thank you so okay. much for on the fly Lily handling this I don't know what's going on on campus but there were like ninety seven school buses on Voight Drive. And and none of them were moving. And so I was trapped, and I didn't know to run, but the dogs were in the car. Anyway, thank you for... And I, and I have these introductions um, that I maybe will do a, a little closing will you, finish. Will you, will you? Do a little closing finish with. Yeah. But then um, y'all get to ask... Um, ask our readers some questions and they'll they'll come up and they'll answer questions for you and since how many of you in this room um have worked with one of the readers you heard today as a as they're they're a ta for you 
Most of you, good. I that's what I thought. I thought that. Um, and and for how many of you is this the first time you're hearing their work? Yeah, that's amazing. So so now you know even more how lucky you are to be working with them. That um, that they're not just amazing um, instructors who are dedicated to helping you. Um, become more wild while you become more um, uh, agential in your work at the same time and learn more about the history of the work that yours is in conversation with. Um, but they are also, and, and wouldn't be here if they were not what we feel to be like really just some of literally the best writers in the world. Um, and uh, we, just so you know, if any of you are thinking about MFA programs in the future, um, we make all of our decisions about who comes into the program by consensus. The entire faculty picks the top uh, 12 people and then the top, we normally um, bring in five, or four or five, um, and we all decide that without a whole lot, actually with almost no argument. Um, and the top five or seven are usually like all ones when we pick, really. Um, and then we have to figure out how to get the money to support them <laughs> because all of them, um, we don't want any of them to be in competition with each other for funding so that um, instead of there being kind of this rock star model um, of graduate school where a few different people get all the money and everyone else is paying to support them, that in fact everyone's on the same page no matter where they're coming from. Um, and uh, we've found that it's making for a really incredible ongoing literary community um, that I've never seen at any other school or any other program, um, and it goes after this too, as well. So it looks like it's working to me. I won't, I won't take up too much more of your time, but I do want to say that um, I don't even know if I need this, but I'm going to do it because you guys oh, did yeah, the yeah, work. Yeah. Okay, thank you, Lily. Um, and uh, it's such a. There are a few years where I was here, and like if I were stuck in traffic on Voight, and we had a graduate student reading there would be nobody to introduce the graduate students. There were, like, at least two years like that. And uh, it's so amazing that I can be as big of a ADD monster as I am and uh, still uh, know that everything's going to go okay. So um, TM, so now we're going to, uh, I'll wrap it up. Um, can someone turn that off? For some reason, this thing always just seems so ugly. To I know for some of you it's beautiful. For me, it's ugly. Okay. Uh, TM is especially talented. See if you agree um, uh, now that you've heard the work. Um, snap when you agree. Okay. Um, TM is especially talented at bringing chill vibes into a space. Everywhere he goes, the California good vibes follow. And TM is especially good with his work ethic. He's never not ready to tuck in and workshop. And TM inspires me to be better at setting appointments with myself to write and make art. Um, ourselves, I'll say. TM goddamn, and TM goddamn Lawson writes constantly and fills notebooks. Once during workshop, they said, oh yeah, I have 200 poems ready to go. <laughs> 
TM is ext- and TM is extremely loyal to their friends and is a wonderful addition to the community here at UCSD. And TM inspires me to be more productive, to write constantly. And also, nothing is spared and every word is necessary in TM Lawson's prose. They are masterful at weaving together strange and evocative worlds and give astute criticism. TM inspires us to write unflinchingly. Aiden LaRue is especially talented at articulating her comments in workshop, her experience with art and culture show, and how she details literary engagement in workshopped pieces. Not only that, but also, Aiden is especially good with her gentle good energy. She comforted me when I was having a mental breakdown and encouraged me to get help from CAPS and... Also, Aiden inspires me to elevate my understanding of art, literature, and understanding of theory. But even still, Aiden is already an accomplished artist, and the length of her CV intimidates us, me, all of us. <laughs> and not only that, but Aiden is a wonderful teacher, duh, who inspires me, who clearly made has made an impact on all of her students. That's you. Um, Yet, even more wondrously, Aiden inspires us to get our shit together and budget our money better. (laughs) And not only that, but Aiden is especially talented at making delicious, delicious food treats. For example, the miso soup and molten lava cake she made when we lived together. Good heavens, it was scrumptious. And to take it to the furthest extreme, Aiden is especially good with centering our group with respectful and intuitive vibes. She listens just as deeply as she participates in spaces she's a part of. And... Not only all of all of that and all of all the other, but Aiden inspires me to dress better and buy better quality clothes. <laughs> now, now, Allison. Now, Allison is especially talented at writing music in her work. She made this poetry playlist that gave instructions on how to move and react to the music. But especially, Allison is especially, especially good with her laugh, which is loud, booming, and abrupt. It always seems to break the tension and is contagious. More than that, Allison inspires us to be more organized, more challenging with our teaching. (laughs) Inspires. I'm working on it. And prominently, Alison Ogunmokun's writing is playful and profound. Her series of short stories about Sweet Drew Baby are both adorable and thought-provoking. But especially, Alison is the most positive person I have ever been in close proximity with. And more specially, Alison inspires me to take care of myself and try to find joy where I can to allow myself to enjoy things like cookies and going to bed at 8 p.m., Yet, as is universally acknowledged, Alison Ogunmokun's poems are lively, human, and tender explorations of what it means to be black in America. She is an incisive teacher who brings goofy, lighthearted energy to the room. Alison inspires us to balance humor and criticality.
Evelyn is especially talented at dissecting gross content and elevating it. For example, she writes about one of the most pathetic engrossed figures in punk rock, whose name I cannot say, but someone else did, and it starts with a GG, and, cru- <laughs> and I just won't say it, um, but you can ask her, and writes a sympathetic view of him. <laughs> Furthermore... <laughs> Furthermore, Evelyn is especially good with making students comfortable. There is not a moment where she doesn't brag about how cool her students think she is because (laughs) she strolls in with a Misfits shirt. And yet, Evelyn inspires me to be more weird. We almost compete with each other. What? We almost compete with each other, and it is wonderful. Nevertheless, Evelyn is especially talented at bringing her whole self into a space. She writes with vigor and punchiness. For example, her scomps, she made her own form. Holy creativity. Still, at the end of the day, Evelyn is especially good with bringing the energy up in the room. She's excited and bouncy and ready for anything. Evelyn is great at calling cohort members in to hang and build community with them. Evelyn inspires me not to be such a hermit and to explore San Diego. And... Finally, Evelyn Murdoch's writing is wildly experimental, playful, and performative. Her poetry and plays, all of it, her work inspires readers to continually probe the boundaries and assumptions we make about form. So we have about, um, you know, we really have about 40 minutes, but we can probably do it in like 20 minutes um, if you'd like, so that then we can all go go out 15 or 20 minutes. Um, Now the writers will all come up and you can ask them questions or say something about their work. um, And... uh, any kind of question is okay, and then they obviously get the um, uh, right to say they don't feel like answer it or answer a different question that you didn't ask, and then you will be grateful anyway. <laughs> okay, come on up. <laughs> yeah, go stand in the... Yeah, we can sit that up. No, it's just a, it's just a thing that you pull. You got it. You did not mess up. So, um, yeah. So here's a good time to get real, even though we're in an institutional setting, with people whose work you're going to have to be buying soon um, and, and studying and teaching others. Yeah. Also, shout out to Hedy, who made the beautiful books that some of you guys got. Shout out to Hedy. Oh, I can't wait to see this. Mm-hmm.
questions. Yeah. I was actually going to ask if anyone grabbed one of those books. Want it? If anyone. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thoughts or questions about the writing itself? Did you, were you confused about anything? Would you like to know about writing practices? Um, anything at all? Yes. So the question is, what's it like to do essay work coming from a background of theory and critical writing and thinking in a program that um, uh, produces and encourages literary art? Yeah, it's so that's a great question. So I studied uh, visual art and sculpture and installation as an undergrad, but I always used text in my work. Um, so in a lot of ways, the the words were already there, and then this is almost shifting to the opposite, where the words are often about visual art mm -hmm. and are containing these other images within them. Um, and I think writing essays is kind of the perfect form to tie in. Like, as you noticed, I get to write and talk about art and use my previous experience as an art critic and talk about the sort of, a lot of my work was really, my visual art work is tactile and mm -hmm. sensory. And so I think writing is just another way to tap into those same things, and writing can feel really flat, but it's always like a challenge to make it feel more full. Um, and I think this program in particular is uh, pushing for experimental cross-genre work, so there's a lot of space to make this kind of work, whereas a lot of other MFA programs are demanding that you sort of claim territory when you come in, you state, like, I am a fiction writer, and then you take only fiction classes. <coughs> so here we get to just play, and like you saw in Evelyn's work, make up our own forms, or um, same with TM and Allison's work, they're all playing with form in their own ways and expanding the boundaries of what a genre is. So um, I feel like I'm at liberty here to sort of pull all of that and there's an amazing visual art department here mm -hmm. where I can take classes. The question is how have your tastes changed since you've been here? Oh, do I go first? Anybody. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> how have my tastes change, like, writing, just, like, as far as literature goes. Yeah, just that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, food? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what, um, yeah, um, how have my tastes changed? Um, I don't, I don't have someone holding on to my leash now, going, don't be so experimental, you're going to alienate everybody, <laughs> um, which I think has done a lot to you know, I guess, my, has, has had an impact on uh, my tastes. Um, I've 
started to get into more experimental writers that I wouldn't have gotten into. I think Dean Young was like the most experimental contemporary writer that I knew when I first came here, and now I'm just like, yeah, that's not experimental. You know. um, but yeah, so like, I don't know. Ben Dollar showed me a lot of poetry um, that I liked. Yeah, I'm going to stop talking now. <laughs> I guess since um, coming here, my outlets have changed. So I was previously living in Chicago. So I was uh, dancing two or three times a week and then doing improv shows three times a week or stand-up. Uh, and so moving here, the outlets have changed, which is why it's... Which is good, I think, because I was only able to tap into one sort of writing, but now if I can't perform with a team, then I have to like, sit and write something. If I can't dance, then I'll write a choreography and see what that looks mm -hmm. like and see how that might take shape on the body through mm -hmm. word or through like, a person's interpretation of what I'm hoping it'll look like, if that makes sense. Um, and then previously, when I was an undergrad, I wrote a fiction that was so horrible. <laughs> it's so bad. Uh, and I had a class where my professor was like, these are, uh, they get so close to being clever, but <laughs> they just never quite get there. So I was like, well, fiction, I can't, I will never, I will never dabble in that. And then I was teaching for Anna Joy, I was TAing for Anna Joy, and fiction felt accessible again, so I was like, okay, maybe I'll hop in and see how that goes. So I guess, maybe not taste, but I feel more open to writing things that I wasn't going to do previously, and now I feel like, I, I feel a little bit more limitless in that way. I used to eat a lot of Asian food, and now I've come across more Mexican food because it's better down here. I used to come from LA, and it's good there, but we don't have carne asada fries. Oh, carne asada fries. And surf and turf. <laughs> you know, I'm really partial to the surf and turf. Um, I've come around on aioli, but very sparingly. Oh. <laughs> uh, I was a big fan of sushi. I know, I don't like mayo. It's just fancy mayo. Yeah, well, I actually had a really good garlic aioli on my birthday with truffle fries. So that mm -hmm. was oh, that's nice. That was really yeah. nice. It's mayonnaise. Uh, uh, it's I recently discovered I'm gluten sensitive, um, and all, as well as lactose sensitive. So, yeah, that's how my taste has changed. <laughs> um. I don't think my tastes have changed that much. I think I've like further steeped myself in what I was already doing. But like Allison mentioned, I when I TA'd for Anna Joy, I like started playing around with fiction, which I wrote like my first short story ever, mm -hmm. my first quarter here, which was really cool. Mm -hmm. as close attention to sound as it seems like your poetry does. I'm curious uh, what your process looks like for writing fiction versus poetry, considering you hadn't done a lot of fiction in the past. Uh, is the way that you come to the page the same, or is it different? The, the question is, um, I, the, the statement at the preceding the question is, I hear a lot of musicality in your prose. What's, uh, what's the relationship between how you come to work as a prose writer and as a poet? And how is it similar or different? Something like that. Yeah, great question. I'm, uh, 
a train and somebody's listening to music and they're tapping their foot, I'll count the beats to see what time signature they're on. <laughs> uh, the worst ever was this guy listening to reggae who was foot tapping on one and three. And I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was me being judgmental. Anywho, in, when I'm writing poems, I'm very keen on meter. Like I count the metrics on every line and then I'll comb through it again and try and get the right time signature. Um, and so when I'm writing fiction, I try and do the same thing, but the lines aren't as compact. Uh, so it can be a little bit more difficult, but, and that's the reason why I started writing in different languages, is that I was getting more syllables and more, more consonants in. Um, and I guess in terms of process, I'll just read it out loud and like try and uh, look at the syllables and, as well as counting the meter also, and then just highlight, like if there's a lot of uh, good sounds in, in a sentence, I'll try and say like, well in this paragraph, could there be more of those? How can I work that in there more? So I guess it's just combing through and seeing like what is, which is really like improv in a way, like what is happening already? How can I amplify this happenstance thing? Mm. Mm. I have one last one. I don't know if it's the last one, but maybe last one. Um, what, as um, both instructors and as um, you know, apprentice academic writers, um, apprentice public intellectuals who make literary art, what <coughs> would you say um, is the biggest paradox about? learning into this practice? Ooh. That's massive. What's paradoxical? Okay. Uh, it's a common complaint, and I suffer through it before and still. When you see the masters, you know, their, their final work, and you go, it's so simple. I could do that. <laughs> and then you do it, and then in workshop they eviscerate you because you're not a master, <laughs> but you go, but it's just like that, isn't it? And it's not, and that's the paradox <laughs> that I have found with teaching and learning that you're not the master. <laughs> I would say, um, it's very kind that you think that we're public intellectuals are on our way to being that way. But I think for me, the greatest paradox of that is that um, I think to actually be a better writer, you have to be less professional. And I've talked with some of my students about this. Like, I think the best thing that you can do if you want to be a professional writer or artist is to get some crappy waiting tables job or nannying job fresh out of undergrad so that you have time and energy to still make your work. Um, like the, the actual track that I found most useful was to be, to not aim at being professional, but to aim to give myself time to te to keep growing and learning and teaching myself. And that like the hardest thing would be if you shackled yourself with a 40 hour a week job and then you're squeezing it in. Um, so for me that, that seemed like kind of two things that were at odds with each other, but has been quite liberating. Oh, me next? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Um, that's cool. Uh, biggest paradox for me. Um, 
being someone who has been historically anti-authority and finding myself in a minor position of authority. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, it's it's definitely a it's definitely something that I, I have trouble wrestling with because you know I get up in front of my students and I don't I don't want to assign a numerical value to your writing because I mean I hope you put your heart into it and everything you know but I, I have to and that bothers me and also paperwork. There's lots of paperwork to fill out and stuff, and it's just goodness. <laughs> Is that, did I, does that answer the question? Yeah. Um, I don't know if this is a paradox, but I think sometimes you read through something, and you'll read through it multiple times, and you'll annotate it, and you'll circle things. And while I've been here, I'll do that and I'll read. I'll be the best reader I can be. And then after read number six, I'm like, what was that? What did I just read? I'm so confused. Uh, and I used to, that used to also make me feel bad. I'd be like, well, I couldn't possibly be a writer or a scholar if I'm trying to digest this and it's just not happening. Uh, but that's not true. I think like over time, like I'm, I'm learning as a learner. I'm a marinator, so I need to mm -hmm. need to consume the text. I need to let it rest for however long, and then you arrive at the text, and the text arrives at you mm -hmm. in good time if you're putting in the work for it. I think so. I don't know if that's a paradox, but that's like yeah. a lesson learned yeah. through this program. Final questions or comments, Louisa. Thank you for being wonderful. You're welcome Thank for being you. wonderful. Yes. And it was sweet.